Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, a classic Sega game in Animal Crossing. A new game that Castlevania fans cannot miss. And we're joined by veteran video game designer David Mulling. This week's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 225, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And what a show we've got for you this week. Now, before we get into it, I was just thinking, I mean, here in the UK, what are we now like into week, would this be like week eight of lockdown now? I've lost Uh, all sense of time. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, like the first six weeks, I was really keeping on top of things, really keeping track working out every single day and then these last two weeks i've just been like what day is it <laughs> like so, i'm still working but i'm just all over the shop because i think i speak for all of us here you know when all this started we were kind of a bit worried we thought you know the podcast is probably going to suffer because of it because i mean you know you, we had to get you guys set up with home studios we haven't seen each other in person for like two months now we're doing everything over like facebook messenger and google docs and i think what we've kind of done is we've really just upped our efforts haven't we we've kind of put 10 times more work in and you know without getting all self congratulatory because that always sounds a bit cringe but based on the reaction that we've had recently you guys have been really enjoying it as well and I think you know I'm some of the shows that we've done during lockdown I've been the podcast I've been most proud of that we've ever done over the last few weeks I think you know boys we've really knocked it out the park recently I was gonna say I think everybody's kind of contribution you know I've always kind of just done a little bit on the side and you two have been like you know always worked your ass off but once again without being that kind of like self-contratulations like I feel like I've stepped up a little bit not quite as much as you boys have stepped it up because <laughs> Ravi's absolutely smashed out of the park with some of the guests he's got on these last couple of weeks, which I think have been a huge contribution uh, to the show. Well, I think in these in in these unprecedented times, how many times have you heard that said? I think um, a lot of people need a kind of escape. Yeah. And yeah. The, the stories on the podcast have been really good. And this week isn't different. We've got David Mullick and, oh my God, he's been in so many amazing companies here he was in the walt disney company he was in cyber dreams the 3do company and edgeware so he did one of the first space rpgs on a personal computer for the apple II. he's also done a lot of dark games so he did you know the prisoner the 1960s tv show he did one that was based on that that apparently the cia were using to train themselves on and (laughs) also he did the absolutely amazing i have no mouth and i'm a screen so he was he was a producer of that and dark sea 2 also ducktales as well oh wow <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite a very yeah, cv there isn't it? i <laughs> yeah. love ducktales i wasn't expecting that <laughs> yeah so it's a great another great interview and a, and a great story and we're going to keep bringing you these kind of great stories so you know you can just forget about stuff and shove the retro hour on yeah, because I mean, some of the shows we've done recently have been some of the favourite podcasts you know, of mine we've ever done. Probably helped by the fact that I can do it in my dressing gown and don't have to brush my teeth. Yeah, that, <laughs> That's <I> why. <laughs> but David Mullick is going to be our guest on the show in around 15 minutes from now. You know, you mentioned that game that you worked on then, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. I remember that game was like 
really dark. Wasn't it something like, um, I haven't played it for a long time, but I remember it being a computer, essentially like a, a Skynet kind of computer that killed off all of humanity and kept a few people alive just to torture them. Yeah, yeah. And the whole idea of the game is that you're making ethical decisions. Yeah. And, you know, there's not ma- many games these days where you're kind of put in the role of making ethical decisions. But, you know, all the games he made were really innovative. And it was it was based on a really famous novel as well. But they kind of adapted it and expanded it a bit for the game. Now, before we do that, let's take a second to give a huge thank you to this week's supporter, our very good friends at ExpressVPN. So that might be one thing, you know, a lot of people working from home at the moment. One thing you might not be thinking about too much is your internet privacy. Because a lot of people think if you're on your home network at home, you, you open Chrome in incognito mode and you're completely safe and secure. Nobody can see what you're doing, which actually actually isn't the case because even in incognito mode, your online activity, everything that you're doing in there can still be seen by your internet provider, which is why services like ExpressVPN really do protect your privacy. I know, Ravi, ever since I've known you, you've been a huge advocate of VPNs and privacy. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think Express is absolutely fantastic for it because it's really fast and you can use it on many devices as well. So you can have privacy on your own computer, but also on your mobile phone when you're out and about. You know, it's really got lots of different functions. And obviously privacy is a big concern for a lot of people right now with all the data leaks and the stories that we've read about in the news over the last couple of years. ExpressVPN makes sure that even your internet service provider can't check out what websites you visit, they can't read your emails. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers. And each of their servers has got an IP address that's actually shared among thousands of different users. So what that really means is everything you do on there is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. And also they encrypt 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption. So your information is always protected. So that means you can use the internet in confidence from your computer, your tablet, your smartphone. They've got you covered by tapping one button on any device and you are protected. That's why they're the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market, actually rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and lots more as well. So we want you to protect your online activity today with the VPN that we trust to secure our privacy. So if you want to get three months free on a one-year package, all you've got to do is open this in your web browser right now, expressvpn.com slash retro. And obviously for doing this, you'll be really helping out the podcast as well. So you can get three months free on a one-year package, expressvpn.com slash retro. Thanks to our good friends at ExpressVPN. Right then, let's get into this week's stories. And now obviously... Animal Crossing, everyone's been going wild about New Horizons recently. I must admit, I've probably spent way too much time recently watching Twitch streams of Animal Crossing New Horizons. Yes, I find that crazy. <laughs> like, I've got nothing against Animal Crossings, but so many people are playing it at the moment. It's just like absolutely phenomenal how huge it is. But what I, I'm not into it personally because I just feel like I could be doing these things in real life. But then to hear that people watching streams of people playing it <laughs> it's just crazy sad it was um, like but, me <laughs> yeah exactly but at the same time i do love what the community are doing with it so what we've been seeing recently is yesterday one i saw which i thought was hilarious was somebody actually made an island into danny devito yeah. the one we're talking about today is somebody recreated a outrun in it which i thought was fantastic so how how are you able to do this then is it like are, are they able to create community content or something yeah so uh, from what i understand i mean i think dan's a little bit more familiar with the game but from what i understand you can go into like each other's worlds and you can do stuff but there's like assets in the game that you can move about and you can send each other and stuff 
And essentially, there's a Ferrari racing car, but it's actually a bed. <laughs> and somebody's made the track, like, and then put the bed in there. And then they kind of like using like the graphics and stuff like that, just recreated it. But I'm pretty sure it's just images, you know, and you just, you can't actually drive the car around and stuff. But it looks fantastic. And I just love that there's still like that kind of like, you know, people are using modern games to kind of recreate retro games still. I like the palm trees at the side as well. It yeah. Give that yeah. kind of outrunny feel. And they've actually done like repeating items as well to kind of make it look a bit like, you know, the outrun super scalar sprites when they kind of got smaller in the distance. Yeah. That, that, oh, that. yeah. <laughs> and, and this Danny DeVito one looks pretty funny where they've recreated the whole island to look like Danny DeVito. It's <laughs> pretty insane. It's just insane. Like, I can't, my, my sister-in-law keeps going on about it all the time. She's like, oh, yeah, me and, you know, me and my boyfriend, we've sent each other these letters and we sent this letter and stuff. I'm just like, oh, boring now. Like, just send each other a letter in real life. But then you kind of see people doing these kind of silly things and you're like, actually, that's quite funny. <laughs> that's the thing, a game of this kind of scale, I mean, it, it's kind of a big open world. You can do so much with it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you know they've done like the GoldenEye 007 intro recreated in it recently <laughs> yeah. that I'll link up in our show notes as well I do love the fact as well some of these like screenshots they've kind of got like the guy and the girl and like the you know the, the red car behind them the good thing about doing it in Animal Crossing is your girlfriend doesn't beat you up if you lose a race like she did in the original Outrun <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can get away with that these days to be honest <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean like you said I just get a kick out of seeing things like this so we thought that was quite a quirky little story look forward to seeing what else people are going to be doing with Animal Crossing New Horizon as well so if you want to check out that and uh, the other things we talked about we'll put them all in our show notes at theretrohour.com now of course the Raspberry Pi never fails to impress us and if you're getting a bit sick of maybe waiting for the Atari VCS console it turns out you could do essentially the same thing with an off-the-shelf Raspberry Pi yeah so this is really interesting actually because um, I was I was thinking exactly of the Atari VCS when I saw this because I was thinking what games are they going to have on it what licensed titles and uh, this is by Inland Micro Center. It's actually a Raspberry Pi Free Model B. But um, what it includes is it's like a little kit, $99, and it includes USB game pads, micro SD, the Raspberry Pi, an Atari Pi case as well. So it's got a little custom case, HDMI cable, and the Atari Pi case is quite nice. It's it's, it's wood grained, you know, it's it's one of these Raspberry Pi cases. So, But also it comes with a 100 plus licensed atari games as well so this is an official kind of license release with the atari logos on it i've seen a few complaints that it's actually a raspberry pi 3 not a 4 but i mean the 3 has got more than enough power to emulate yeah, old yeah, atari 2600 like titles doesn't it the only <laughs> thing i don't like about the package because i mean you get the the raspberry pi in there you get the case hdmi cable they put an sd card in there with all the the games on as well you get the power supply but they've got like a a playstation 2 kind of clone controller you think they'd have like the one button joystick yeah, yeah, it's, it, it does seem a bit kind of bashed together, yeah. which kind of makes me think, like, why have they actually licensed this with if the VCS is going to come out so close to it? Maybe maybe it was just like a, a separate decision. I oh, would just license these games and then it got put in a package somehow. I think as well, it just seems like Atari are trying to stamp their name on anything at the moment. We talked about the casinos yeah. and the hotels, so it doesn't seem like they're that fussy about the trademark right now, does it? No, it's it's absolutely everywhere. We'll have Atari pants next. There probably is Atari <laughs> pants, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, for like that package, you know, getting a controller and you get the SD card, for 99 quid, I mean, if you bought all those separately in a case for a Raspberry Pi, it would probably add up to around that anyway. So uh, if you just want the hardware, it's probably a good way of getting it all together in one pack, I think. Yeah, yeah, and if, if you're an Atari fan, you know, you could probably... 
maybe take these games off it and 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 use them in another way somehow um because yeah it, it seems like it wouldn't be tied into the kind of operating system i imagine there are any roms on that sd card yeah most likely yeah just copy them over now anyone here a fan of castlevania i love castlevania you know that dan <laughs> <laughs> i thought you might joe are you getting a bit fed up waiting for a new one though yeah massively so we haven't had a castlevania since 2014 an official castlevania game like a new one we've had you know re-releases of the originals and stuff and even that uh, one didn't go down all that well lord of the shadow too. It, it, yeah yeah even then they weren't you know they did all right but they weren't like the classics kind of thing um and we've had a couple of kind of like metroidvania kind of games come and go over the last couple of years but there's another one coming called Lords of Ed- Lords of Exile, which is on Kickstarter at the moment, and it's doing very well. I mean, it's um, it's only been running a few twenty seven days to go at the time of recording this, and they only want ten thousand pounds, and they're already up to nearly eight thousand. So yeah. I think it's guaranteed it's going to smash its goal. Yeah, I think it's going to smash it, and you know, so essentially what it is by the looks of things, it's a a very badass looking version of an eight bit kind of style Castlevania mm. game. But then it's got 16-bit physics, which I think is pretty cool because of sometimes those 8-bit games can be a little bit kind of dated. Mm. But it's kind of got like the physics and stuff of stuff you could do in like the 16-bit Castlevanias, which I think is cool. But it looks really, really cool. It's going to be on PC and Mac and then it's going to be on Switch. And then they're hoping they'll be able to port it to Xbox One and PS4. But what I think is really cool is it's only $13 if you want it on PC if you back the Kickstarter. And it's only $20 if you want the Switch version. That is good. And, that, yeah. and they've got all the kind of like references to Castlevania. So he's yeah, Gabriel, it, Gabriel in the corner and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, it does look very Castlevania-esque. Um, and it's by a Spanish studio called, I'm going to pronounce this really badly now, I think it's Kazuga, Kazuga or Sazuga. I'm not too sure. It's spelled C-Z. But it looks really interesting and I'm really tempted to back it. I've never actually, I never really back things. I usually just kind of get them after they've kind of come out, yeah. you know, after they've done really well. But I'm thinking for $20 on the Switch, like... Yeah, that really would be, be dope on the Switch. That would yeah. be really good. And a lot of the time you see these kind of things and, you know, they're really expensive. They're like $50 or $40 or whatever. And you just think, like, oh, I might just wait for it to be successful and come out and then I'll pick it up when it's secondhand or whatever or get a physical copy. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to do this one because I really, really do want that kind of like classic Castlevania, but something new because I've rinsed all the old ones. <laughs> Well, a couple of years ago, we got Bloodstained Curse of the Moon. Um, yeah. You can get in the Switch eShop right now. A lot of people are kind of comparing it to that um, mm. in terms of the visuals and the way it plays. Because that was by um, Inti Creates, who I think are like yeah. a, a group of ex-Capcom kind of people, aren't they? Um, yeah. So a lot of people are kind of saying it looks a very similar vein to that. And I mean, you know, I remember that going down really well. I've never really been massively into the Castlevania series, but from what I saw, I mean, people were really writing about what kind of a good interpretation that was of the game. And that's the thing, I mean, looking at this, I mean, it's Castlevania without the trademark, really, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Like, you would just, if you were just to show it to somebody who's familiar with Castlevania and just say, that's the new Castlevania game, they would just be like, oh, yeah, wicked, or that is a Castlevania (laughs) game. They'd just be like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, you wouldn't doubt it, which I think is really cool. And, and I think, you know, it's obviously a series that a few people are saying it would be nice to see a, few, a bit more of the 16-bit aesthetic because kind of the 8-bit thing's kind of been done quite a lot yeah. over the years, which I kind of do get their point. But, I mean, looking at that, and especially when you're playing it on the Switch as well, it really does feel like that's its natural platform, like, you know, on, on the Nintendo platform, doesn't it? Yeah, games. yeah. So. and I do need more games for my Switch because I still only have two after I was going on about getting a Switch for years. <laughs> <laughs> are you not playing any of the NES or Super Nintendo games on it? No, I haven't been, actually. I've, uh, I've been playing it xbox one a lot recently 
Um, Ravi's been rubbing, rubbing off me with uh, all these Battle Royale games. I've been playing Warzone. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I love Warzone, but I get my ass beaten by like 10-year-olds every time I play it. So uh, I'd send up rage quitting usually. Doesn't sound like I me, don't like it? it when you pick up stuff and a guitar goes, Dow! I'm like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need a guitar chord, thank you. <laughs> Fair so, enough. So if you do want to back Lords of Exile, I'll put a link to the Kickstarter that's running now. That's definitely going to smash its goal easily though, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Now, if you are missing work at the moment, maybe you're on furlough or you're working from home and you're thinking, oh, I really miss being in the office. Well, it turns out you could do this virtually. Now, <laughs> Joe sent me over this link. I just this thinking, game. who's going to want to do that? <laughs> hey, Believe it or not, hey, I'm, missing, I'm missing that office environment. <laughs> well, now you can recreate it from the comfort of your own couch. Now, this is a game called ASAP Please. Now, not only can you play this game, that is essentially you get to play the role of a marketing manager via a retro video game through the web browser, but also it looks like they're going to be releasing this as a physical Sega Mega Drive game as well. Yeah, so when he kind of, the guy who's made this, when he started making it, he had the Mega Drive in mind. So we're hoping that it will come. But I think what really made me laugh about this is there's a mini game where you have to try and put a HDMI cable into the back of your computer. (laughs) (laughs) To do your presentation in the boardroom. (laughs) Yeah, when you're doing a presentation in the boardroom. And that killed me because... I work in an office and this happens every single week and you can never get it to work. So that just killed me. Yeah, I'm actually, I think that's one of my biggest bugbears about being at work as well. We've got like a a TV in the boardroom where I work and there's like one guy in the office that knows how to get like the the Mac Mini that we kind of use for like presentations and stuff working. And I'm a really technical guy. You know, my parents, I grew up around computers. I, I love technology. I do a podcast about technology. I can never get the TV on. Every time I've got to go in the office, Mark, can you come get the TV on, please? Yeah, we, so- we're the same. We, we, have one mem- we have one guy from HR and we have to go get him. And he all, he comes down and he comes in and he does it in like two seconds. Uh, I'm that Maybe guy. Yeah, that's <laughs> Ravi's that guy. <laughs> so this is an office simulator. I mean, like I said, you can play it in a web browser. It has got that kind of um, Mega Drive look to it as well, hasn't it? The 16-bit yeah. graphics. It it looks like a Japanese RPG yeah. from the Mega Drive, like you know, kind of like Fantasy Star or something. And it's mapped to Mega Drive controllers as well. It's got like a virtual Mega Drive controller on yeah. screen. I mean, ironically, I'm actually still in work at the moment. There's like you know one or two of us in every day. Um, I tried playing this at work and it was blocked by the company firewall. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to enjoy it in my free time at home. I think so. It's uh, asapthegame.com if you want to check it out. And there's actually an option on there if you want to order it, a physical Mega Drive cartridge as well. So. It looks like oh, there's awesome. something they're planning, so it um, looks like a bit of a giggle. Now, before we get into our chat this week with David Mullick talking about dystopian games, The Prisoner, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, tell us about this keyboard artist, Ravi. Yeah, so there's been a couple of couple of items about keyboard artists <laughs> this week. And the first one is Eric Jensen, and he's using old keyboards. Uh, he's basically using one making one piece with 40,000 individual keys and then he's painting them and uh, putting them in order like the you know the art pieces that they made out of all the tiny pieces before and he's created famous paintings like the Mona Lisa the Starry Night uh, the Gill with pearl earrings as well so that's about 460 keyboards each image (laughs) (laughs) so so he's doing that at the moment but whilst this was going on i was kind of just looking online and stuff and nostalgia nerd did a fantastic video and this was about a keyboard in norwich now it's a fossilized keyboard inside a pavement and he actually found 
the person that originally did it. And it, this has become kind of a, a Norwich legend. And what happened was an art student walked past and she was making pieces of art with molds of keyboards and she saw this fresh bit of concrete. So pressed, years ago, pressed this uh, kind of... Keyboard mold. Yeah, pressed the mold into the concrete, left That's it, crazy. and now it's permanently stayed there and become this <laughs> iconic thing in Norwich. And lots of people have made up tales, like guys were saying, oh, it fell off the back of a lorry, and then a lorry crushed it into the concrete. Or, <laughs> Aliens. Or an old, old typewriter. <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> <it> down. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is Nostalgia Nerds video. Why is there a fossilized keyboard in this pavement? And I think that's really interesting to see. Now, before we get into the Hall of Fame this week, you had a little shout you wanted to do, Ravi. Yeah, so if you've heard of the Terrible Fire 330 cards, they're absolutely fantastic for the Amiga CD32. And if you want to pick one up, check out Super Duper on Amibay. These are these little cards that you can get that expand the CD32 with like um, full computer capabilities. You can put accelerators in there and um, compact flashcards, load all your games off as well. I've got one, they're really cool. But yeah, you're right, a lot of people are like, where do you get them from? Yeah, yeah, and Super Duper is your man. Now, before we get into our interview this week, let's give a big thank you to our very, very loyal supporters, people who back us on Patreon. We had our second Patrons Hangout last weekend that I think was even more fun than the first one. Oh, we should have done these earlier, you know. They're so nice, just <laughs> being able to talk to your community yeah. and kind of just have a chat. You know, it's, it's a really nice little club at the moment, really. I love the fact that, you know, we had um, we were chatting on Patreon. Everyone kind of brought something from their collection, even if there were... Uh, we had Rich, who was outside in his balcony. <laughs> who, like, you know, With a Games something. Master jo- Golden Joystick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing, that was. Yeah, so it, it's really good, actually, just to see everyone's collections and what's in there as well. So we are going to be doing it every month at the moment. Obviously, the reason that we have a Patreon... We're did say at the start of the show and we're doing the show remotely at the moment but the idea is when we can eventually all get back together we want to build our own retro hour studio to give us a lot more flexibility to allow us to do more content for you guys to allow us to do video as well and we're on our way there thanks to your support and obviously everyone that backs us on patreon eventually you will get a shout in the retro hour hall of fame we're working our way through as many as we can each week and also you'll be able to join us for the monthly hangouts we get exclusive bonus patron only content that we put out on there every so often as well so if you'd like to back us, all the details are at theretrohour.com. And thank you so much for your support this week. Scott Coulter. Adam Dimmick. Frank Evan Drunholt. Jane Hamill Art Class. And David Harp. Who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you can back us on Patreon. All the details are on our website at theretrohour.com. Can I say as well, thank you so much for your uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts recently. I did see that we had a few new ones on there, I think. We got like our first two new ones in about six months recently. Um, and we haven't talked about it for a while, but it is always really nice to see that you guys are enjoying the show. And obviously we have them on uh, our Facebook page as well. So nice to get a bit of feedback. If you enjoyed the show, leave a little review on there. It helps us get in front of new people. And uh, you can do that on um, your favorite podcast client but you know it really does help if you can do it on apple Podcasts as well because uh, i know not everyone uses it but that's kind of the the benchmark for the charts unfortunately isn't it so if you have got the app do leave a little review on there be massively appreciated right then let's get into our interview this week ravi catching up with david mullick talking about so much in this interview disney cyber dreams 3do company the prisoner i have no mouth and i must scream david mullick is our guest on the retro our podcast next You're listening to the Retro Hour, and I'm here with David Mullick. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, great. Um, rather hot at the moment. We're having a bit of a heat wave. That's funny that you're having a heat wave in England. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles, where it's normally hot, 
but it's uh, the temperatures here in May has been in the 60s. Well, you've got an absolute fantastic history of, uh, you know, a lot of kind of dark dystopian games and a lot of sci-fi as well. Uh, so we ask a question of all of our guests. And the first question is, uh, what was your first computer experience? I would normally say that my first computer experience was in college. But uh, another game designer I know, Ernest Adams, posted on Facebook something that jogged my memory and that, that his first computer experience was the same as mine. It was the uh, golden how and why wonder book of robotics and electronic uh, uh, electronic brains, uh, which is a book that, that I read, well, both he and I read when uh, we, were, we, were, we were youngsters. And that was my... Now that I that my memory was jogged, that really was my first experience with computers, reading about them in a book. And that got me real excited about the idea of, of computers. Because a lot of computers were initially referred to as electronic brains. Yes, absolutely. Because uh, people really didn't understand what computers were at, at the time, that they were essentially big calculating machines. Probably to a lot of people, they sounded much more sinister, which made them great, uh, great foils for uh, for uh, science fiction stories. So, how, how did you get into uh, science fiction, and um, how did you get into writing some uh, of your first computer titles? Well, I, I, I've long been a science fiction fan. I remember watching uh, the original series of Star Trek. Uh, when the very first episode came out in 1966, that that had probably one of the biggest influences on my life. Probably my, the biggest influences, through in terms of what my tastes were in fiction, were uh, was Star Trek and uh, Lord of the Rings, which I first read when I was 12 years old. Uh, but I was I was a voracious reader of both science fiction and fantasy, and a big fan of uh, science fiction films growing up. So that uh, and television shows as well. So that that greatly influenced the initial games that I created. Uh, most of the games that I created, especially in my year, early years, were uh, were science fiction oriented. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and actually, my very first computer game was something that was assigned to me. I had been working. Uh, one of my college professors had hired me to be a clerk in his computer store which was one of the very first computer stores to open up in Los Angeles. It sold the, the Apple II computer. And while I was working there, uh, we, uh, one of the, the owners of the, the, one of the very first game publishers, Edgeware Services, bought his computers at that store. And he asked me to write a, uh, a he, if he knew that I was a, a computer science student, and he asked me to write a sequel to a science fiction role-playing game, text-based role-playing game that they had made called Space. And he asked me to uh, write the sequel to it, uh, or really an, an expansion pack for it. Took place in a, in a science fiction universe, and so I wrote a couple of expansions to it. Uh, one based on, uh, one was called, it was a, it was a two-part expansion. Uh, one, there was a mini-game called Psychedelia, which was about taking uh, these, uh, Futuristic drugs that could either uh, either improve your abilities, improve your strength, randomly improve your, your intelligence or wisdom, but the potential at the potential risk of of harming your uh, dexterity or your stamina or some other of your capabilities. So it was a, a risk benefit type of game. And the other was Shaman, which was about being a religious practitioner going about aliens planets and trying to gather followers. 
and that the, that segment was based upon an anthropology class I was taking at the time. So I well, was was very interested in taking real life knowledge and applying it to a science fiction setting. The titles both got removed from the shelf. So uh, what kind of happened there? They did well. As it as it turned out, the original space was, if you want to be charitable, you would say inspired by. Uh, if you want to be more accurate, though, you would say a ripoff of the role-playing game Traveler, which was a which was a, a popular role-playing game at the time. It was the science fiction equivalent of Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, it, the interface copied, the, or rather, the character stats copied uh, copied uh, uh, the, uh, the the character stats from the game exactly, and. Uh, so uh, the uh, makers of the game, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. Uh, game uh, Designers Workshop. Great. G- game Designers Workshop. That's it. Great. Your memory is much better than mine. Uh, they, uh, they sued Edgeware for copyright infringement. And so, uh, so we pulled those games from the market and uh, came up with our own science fiction series called uh, The Empire Series, which, uh, which instead of being text-based, those were, those were – uh, the very first graphics games that I made, first games that that, I, that used uh, uh, 2D graphics instead of text. Well, you mentioned that the uh, publisher and developer was Eduware. How did this company kind of work? Did they have one section for edutainment and uh, one for regular games? And how much control were you given over uh, the decisions of what titles you created? Well, the company was was as you can tell from the uh, the, the name Eduware Educational Software was originally intended to uh, to focus on educational software. Actually, that's not true. It was originally started to create radio software because the owners of the company were uh, Sherwin Steffen, who worked in the uh, educational television department at UCLA, and he befriended a college student there uh, named Steve Pedersen, who was uh, who? Who worked at the the uh, UCLA's radio station? And when Sherwin got laid off from his department, he uh, convinced Steve to go into business with him. And originally, their plan was to create. Steve wanted to create radio software, but they they decided at first to get into educational software, which was Sherwin's interest. And kind of Steve split the difference by making games. So. They made both educational software and games, depending on whatever interests them at the time. And when Sherwin approached me to uh, write some software for him, uh, he asked me to write some games. And uh, as I said, the very first game was a sequel, or rather an expansion pack, to their space role-playing game. The other games that I made as a freelancer were completely at my discretion. And so the... uh, uh, oil well crisis, the the oil shortage crisis was going on at the time, and so I made my next game was called Windfall, Windf- uh, Windfall, a a, a uh, oil crisis simulator, which was about in which the player ran in a uh, oil company and controlled the prices and tried to 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 uh, make money while setting uh, the appropriate prices at the pump in order to uh, to maximize the uh, the max amount of money that they were receiving without raising the price so high that they would lose customers. And so it was an economic simulation. 
and then uh, which was based upon a uh, economics class I was taking at the time. I then followed it up with a game called Network, which was built around uh, running a television network and figuring out where to place uh, television shows on your time slot to get the maximum ratings. And that was based upon a, a mass, uh, mass communications class I was taking at the time. At, at that time, when I, was, when I was working as a freelance for Edgeware, I got to do whatever games uh, popped into my head. Uh, so, uh, so I uh, pretty much free reign. That's awesome because we've had so many developers on that were kind of forced to go down one fixed path, and it sounds like you you came up with some really original ideas. I did at first. Uh, that that eventually that didn't last very long. The very last game I made, I think that was uh, completely my passion, was The Prisoner, which I didn't make until I was an actual Edgeware employee. When I graduated from college. Uh, Edgeware offered me a full-time position as a game designer and programmer, and they first uh, had me working on educational software. But I was a, a huge fan of the British television series The Prisoner, which was rerunning on our local public broadcasting station at the time. And I was so enamored with the show and its themes of being an individual uh, despite the, uh, the oppression put up by society, that I, I had to make my own game based upon the same themes. And I, I, I pleaded with uh, Sherwin and Steve to let me make this game. And they, uh, they gave in to my, uh, my, my desires and allowed me, and allowed me to, to make that game. And I think that was the very last game that I made uh, that was totally – that came from me and wasn't assigned to me. Well – the Prisoner is a kind of fantastic series, and uh, it was cancelled in 1968. And I remember there was such good sci-fi out there at the time as well. There's stuff like The Avengers as well. And um, why do you think The Prisoner particularly received such a cult status and uh, uh, was worth releasing again, you know, years later after the ca- series had been cancelled? The series became, in the United States, sort of became a, a cult classic uh, when it was rebroadcast in the uh, late 1970s because I, it followed up the whole, you know, hippie, hippie culture that was out there at the time where you were supposed to distrust authority. And I think it played well into that, especially among us college-age students at the time. Um, it was rerun at the right time in, in, in history uh, for it to become popular. And that's that's why I became so enamored with it because it would – uh, at the time, I thought I was—I I fell into the same mindset about opposing authority and and uh, being an individual, uh, and so uh, I, I really had to make a game about that. And the funny thing is, we never acquired a license for the television series. I was certainly very naive about copyright at the time. I had kind of a sense that you shouldn't rip off creators, so I was actually opposed the idea of calling it The Prisoner. Uh, I wanted it to be inspired by, not a, not a ripoff of the series. But, uh, but uh, Sherwin and Steve convinced me that for it to be sellable, it's, it still needs to be called The Prisoner. And they, they never actually acquired the rights at the time. It was, uh, in fact, after, after the initial game, we decided to make a sequel to it. The initial game was just a, a text-based game. But well, we we did a remake two or three years later uh, in graphics, uh, 
because the initial game was so popular. Uh, we, we, we did it in graphics, and I, I insisted we at least investigate getting the uh, copyright to it. So what they did is have their uh, have our marketing person contact ITC, which uh, owned the series, and she said she asked if they had any issue if we made a prisoner-themed restaurant. <laughs> and when they said no, they came the Edgeware came to Google. Well, then it must be okay for us to make a video game too. So <laughs> that would they, be the uh, coolest restaurant in the world. Wouldn't it know? be? Yeah, sitting in a giant orb or something. You know? That's right. Umbrellas everywhere and uh, the uh, Penny Friday bicycle and, and Rover around. It would, it, would, it would be a terrific restaurant. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, h- how did you kind of go about keeping the game recognizable, but uh, not stepping on their toes too much and also keeping it, uh, you know, as Edgewell needed it and intellectually stimulating? Well, I... Uh... I used place names and, and character names that were kind of similar. Instead of calling it the village that the prisoner was located in, I, I called it the island, as a referring to the phrase "no man is an island," no yeah. one is no no individual no no one is a true individual. And uh, I called the uh, instead of number two who ran the island, instead of calling him number two, I called him the caretaker, someone who's supposed to take care of you, and I never called the, uh, the the main character number six, who uh, was a character that Patrick McGuin played. I just called him number, and that's all. So that's as close as I got to uh, to the television series. And I didn't – none of the scenarios in the game were exactly like storylines from, uh, from the series. But it, it had the very same themes. Of finding ways to subvert authority, not following you succeed by not following the rules in the game, and your one main goal, or rather, the, the, the it was it was a game of avoidance. That is, you had to avoid losing by never revealing. Uh, and and this this is the one thing that was straight from the TV series. Well, the reason why the person the, the show is all about a uh, presumably a a spy who uh, resigns from uh, his intelligence agency and is then is captured uh, and taken to this remote village where uh, they try uh, every trick in the book to get, get him to reveal the reasons why he does resigned. And so to mirror that in the game, I, uh, I gave uh, the player a randomly generated number that was kind of a code for why they resigned. And under no circumstances, at any point in the game, should you ever acknowledge this number? Should you ever type it in? Should you ever make a selection uh, using this three-digit number? If you did, you would automatically lose the game. That's how I how I mirrored the television series. That's awesome. And you created the whole thing in basic, right? So uh, this must have been a really big project. It took you about six weeks' time. It was basic with a couple of assembly language routines. I had a maze generator that I created an assembly language in the in the graphics version of the game, I created my own graphics engine that was written in assembly language, as well as a text parser that was written in assembly language. So it was ba- it's a combination of basic and assembly together. Well, you broke the yeah. fourth wall quite a lot in the game, and uh, you know it has that kind of fantastic feeling, uh, especially when you completed it and it says the truth has set you free and you can now escape from your apple. Um, how did people react when they first saw this? Well, you know, I originally wanted the game to be all about uh, – my, my interpretation of the television show well, at the end was that 
the prisoner was really the one who imprisoned himself. And so I wanted in this game to be, uh, in order to escape from it, you have to come to the realization that you are a player playing a game and you're choosing to imprison yourself. And that was that was the realization uh, that the player had to come to at the end. In, in fact, the, 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 the way you actually won the game originally was that you would go and visit the caretaker and through the text language parser you type in, uh, the island is a, is, a, is a computer game. And if you type that in, you automatically win the game, won the game. And I originally wanted it so that you could go in at the very beginning of the game. And if you came to that conclusion right away, you would win the game. And uh, Sherwin and Steve did not like that idea at all. They didn't like the idea of a game where you could theoretically win it immediately. And so uh, I remember we – and I thought thematically that was important that you'd be able to do that. And so we uh, we argued back and forth until late into the night. And then finally I, I came up with a compromise. I said, all right, what you have to do is you have to do a certain number of missions in the game. And once you've gotten to a certain point, then you can make that realization and uh, and, and win the game. So uh, we, we agreed to that compromise, got their blessing onto it. I don't remember what the reaction in general was to that particular ending. It's certainly – in in the reviews, they didn't want to give away the ending. Uh, the yeah. game was very well reviewed. I think the thing that people most remember about the game when, when you talk about breaking the fourth wall is that at one point in the game, it appears that the, ga- the game has crashed. And it would say, like, error at – or syntax error at line 458. And so if you're a, a user of, of the uh, – Apple computers, probably the first thing you do is would type in list line 3538. Well, it turns out game didn't really have an error. It was yet another trick to get you to reveal the uh, reveal your security code for, for resigning. And the, the number that it said uh, that it gave as, as the as the line number where the error occurred was your was your number. And if you typed in less list followed by that number, you would lose the game. So the game got very infamous for, for faking people out and to making it look like it had broken down when, in fact, it was all part of the mind games it was playing on you. Well, as you said, it played a lot of mind games. And uh, there's a rumor going around that the uh, CIA were using it as a training tool at one point. Um, do you know anything that's, about this? That's what uh, Sherwin, the owner of the company, told me. He said that he'd gotten a letter from Arlington, Virginia, where uh, where the CIA is located, and uh, they, they said that uh, they, they said they use that as a training exercise. I Sherwin Sherwin has been known to tell stories before, so I want to take that as, as necessarily the truth. Uh, but uh, I, I never pressed him on it because I, I like the idea that uh, yeah. they, they, they did use it as training. Well, uh, the Prisoner 2 was very impressive with uh, the high-res graphics as well and first-person kind of mode. Um, what, what other improvements did you make on the follow-up? Oh, I made it. For the, for the follow-up, I decided to uh, make it much more of a satire on video games or computer games at the time. When I created the first version of The Prisoner, it was, it was all about breaking rules and being very innovative. And I was actually hoping that it would inspire more games out there, more, more creativity in games. But I was disappointed that instead games had fallen into rather strict uh, genres, each of which had very, 
very standard conventions. You know, all, all platform games kind of work the same. All role-playing games essentially work the, the same. So uh, kind of expressed my disappointment in that. I, I, uh, when I created the uh, new version of The Prisoner, there was a lot of satire put into it, uh, poking fun, fun at games. And so uh, my version of Rover, which was the, uh, the ball-shaped entity that would, that would chase the prisoner whenever he escaped, I represented that in the game as sort of a version of Pac-Man. <laughs> and there were a couple other games out there where I poked fun at some of the other popular video games at the time. Uh, I, I poked fun a little bit at Sierra Online and some of their uh, some of their games. There was a, I, I created my own version of High Res Mystery House in it, and uh, in it I uh, I uh, if a player walked in they'd get accused of killing Ken, which was a reference to Ken Williams, the uh, the president <laughs> of Sierra Online. But if I had if I wanted to have been even more uh, more on point. I would have made it Roberta, who was the, uh, the uh, Ken's wife, who was the chief game designer. Uh, so that's one change I wish I would have made. It would have kind of made the satire even stronger. Uh, but there were there were a couple other games uh, that I went in that I that kind of created twisted versions of those games as a little commentary see. about about oh, uh, how, how how rigid gaming conventions have become. Well, there was also a few of those kind of deliberate bugs and glitches, like uh, when you went to the airport and uh, no matter what you type, the out- output would always be like the eye, I, like it was starting the island. You know? Yeah, yeah. I wanted, I wanted to give the player a feeling of loss of control and that no matter what they did, they would always wind up at the same starting point. And my, my trick as a game designer there is how do I make a game that's both frustrating and engaging as it was designed to, to really piss you off at everything you did and always make you feel that no matter what you did, you would always lose and come back to the same point, but still motivate you enough to keep trying. Since that, that's a really tough balance to create, I've, I've always considered that to that game to be my greatest game design achievement. Well, I found it really interesting that you um, formed the company uh, working with your 3D work called Electric Transit. And they were basically collaborating with NASA. Um, how interested were NASA in, in video games at that time? Well, the uh, way Electric Transit formed was that uh, Edgeware had, had, uh, had been disbanded as a company. Uh, that was because we had been bought out by a, by a large accounting software firm in, uh, based in Atlanta who wanted to break into the home market. And so uh, they uh, did actually they did everything wrong in terms of our marketing. They they marketed our games in the same packaging as their their accounting software. And Ooh. so our, our sales plummeted at zero. So a group of us edgewarians got together and formed our own company. And we pulled in one of our game developers. That person was Wes Huntress, who was a senior scientist at NASA's. Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, which was located not too far away uh, from us in Los Angeles area, and he he had uh, created a on his own time uh, created a, a space shuttle simulator that Edgeware had published. Well, at the uh, time that Edgeware had fallen apart, he was working on another game. He and Charlie Colhase 
uh, Wes was a, was a senior scientist. He was a chemist working on space science. And his game design partner was Charlie Colhase, who was a project manager of the Voyager space probe. And the two of them wanted to make a wilderness survival game. They were both NASA employees, but it wasn't a NASA project. It was something they were doing on their spare time. And, uh, when uh, when a group of us decided to form our own company after Edgeware's demise, Wes Huntress joined us as being one of our partners in the company, and uh, he uh, he brought he, he and Charlie brought along uh, this wilderness survival game they were working on, uh, which we call Wilderness Survival Adventure, and Pat published it through our own company. So we although we worked with NASA people, we weren't working with NASA itself. Um, you also Just, had a relationship with Electronic Arts being the uh, first affiliated label publisher. Um, what, yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. And what was it like working with Trip as well? At the time, there weren't there weren't any big computer stores, big chains. I mean, games weren't in Walmart. There was no Electronics Boutique. There, there, were, there were a couple of, of, of game store chains, but they weren't very big. Most games were sold through thousands of individual mom and pop stores, throughout the country and throughout the world. Uh, so our problem was distribution when we started up Electric Transit. We didn't have a sales force. Uh, we couldn't call each and every one of these thousands of stores to try to sell our product into them. We knew we needed a distributor. And this was the year 1985-86. Electronic Arts, which I believe started in 1983, so only a couple of years ahead of us, uh, had already formed a good distribution network. And they were, in fact, we needed a distributor, and at the time they were interested in distrib- distributing other uh, small publishers' games. So we, uh, we made a deal with them uh, to distribute Wilderness a Survival Adventure, uh, and then our follow-up product, uh, Lunar Explorer, a uh, lunar landing simulator. But the problem was that with us being there first, they also made all their initial mistakes on us. <laughs> and we, they've been distributing us for six months or more. The orders were very good, and we just manufactured like another 5,000 units uh, to sell through them. And when we called them up to say another 5,000 units were on the way, they told us, look, we, uh, we overestimated the demand for your game. We don't want the 5,000 un- new units. And we said, well, it's too late. They're, we're already being shipped to you. They said, tell you what, when they arrive, we're going to hold on to them until you buy back 5,000 units that we, are, that we, are, we ordered previously. And so uh, they, they kind of pressured us into uh, buying back our own inventory. And that got us to a financial hole that uh, we, we never could get out of. We, we eventually broke our contract with, uh, got out of our contract with Electronic Arts and went with another uh, publisher, Spectrum Holobyte, instead. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was a hole we could never get out of. And so uh, after two years, Electric Transit closed down. Well, you got involved with the uh, Walt Disney Company, and uh, you kind of became a video games producer before the role of video games producer actually existed. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, how I got that job, a, a program, a good friend of mine who was who was a, a programmer at Edgeware, uh, when he found out that uh, my, my next company had, had folded, he, he called me up. He said, I saw an ad in the newspaper, and I think he'd be great for it. It was called a 
software development specialist with the Walt Disney Company. And it was all about being a manager for, for video game development. And uh, I was a huge Disney fan. I, I practically grew up going to, to Disneyland. And so I applied for the job and they brought me in for an interview. And they asked me if I could name all seven dwarves. <laughs> I could, <laughs> uh, being a big Disney fan. And uh, they hired me on into a role that uh, they eventually renamed the role as, uh, as video game producer. Uh, but yeah, yeah, first it was called software development specialist, and uh, I was the uh, very first person brought in for that role. They uh, they previously only had uh, some educational specialists and uh, some marketing people in their uh, their very 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 small software division, which was really a uh, a subunit of Walt Disney Educational Productions at the time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was the very first game producer hired by the Walt Disney company. Well, you worked on one of the biggest Disney brands, which was, uh, DuckTales at the time. And, uh, the quest yes, for gold. DuckTales. Well, there, there were actually two versions of DuckTales. The, uh, the first version was that, uh, was produced, uh, by Capcom. Was it my, I believe that was the publisher. When I first started, started working at Disney, what I did was I handled licensed products. That is, other publishers w- would make games based upon Disney titles. Uh, and my job there was to supply them with all the source material they needed. So it would be character model sheets and movie movie uh, production photos and scripts and audio and music, and whatever it is they needed. And they would send us copies of the game. Uh, so that we could check to make sure that everything was on model and, and, and properly Disney material and all that. And so uh, I was I was the, one of the producers. Uh, Darlene Waddington was another producer at the time. We, we both worked on the uh, DuckTales for the Nintendo Entertainment System. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd give them all this, the information they needed. And they'd send back their builds of the game, and I'd play them. And uh, I'll tell you, it was a fun game. I did think it was a little bit weird that that Scrooge McDuck would jump around on his cane using it as a pogo stick. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but I thought it was a fun game. I never re- I, I didn't anticipate it becoming the huge hit that it was. But uh, they did a very good job in the game, and uh, that was uh, that, that, I, I'm proud to be associated with it. I had an even bigger involvement on the PC. Our, our PC game based upon DuckTales, DuckTales, the, the quest for gold. It was, I believe it was the very first computer game published by Disney itself. And no, I'm sorry. There was a second one. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was the first. We had had such success with licensing our games to other publishers that uh, Disney decided to get into game publishing itself. Didn't want to start with console products because that involved manufacturing cartridges and such. And uh, uh, that was a little bit too much of an investment. Uh, We decided uh, to start with making uh, games for home computers at first, which merely involved uh, pressing uh, uh, or rather making copies of uh, floppy disks, which is a lot easier process. That's where we started off with. And uh, I, I worked a little bit. I worked on one of the versions of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but uh, DuckTales, The Quest for Gold, was all my own. I was the, the lead producer on that project. And I hired a, uh, a company called uh, – um, it's 
I, it should come up with it. They're based in uh, it's based in uh, Illinois. Incredible, Incredible Technologies. Technologies. Right. Yeah. Incredible Technologies. That was the company. Yeah, I, I, I hired them to actually make the game because they had made uh, for, uh, for another company called Cinemaware. They had made uh, Cinemaware's Three Stooges game that uh, I really liked. And I thought they'd be appropriate for, for doing DuckTales. And so uh, I contracted them to do that. And we, we co-designed the game together. Uh, and they did all the artwork and the programming. And uh, I, uh, I wrote the Junior Woodchuck Guide, which was the, uh, the manual that went with the game. Uh, so uh, that game uh, came out and it was, uh, it was actually a pretty big hit for the time. And the uh, copy protection was really cool on that as well. If you um, entered the codes, you had to disable the security system. And if you got them wrong, it would flash up saying it was a, a possible Beagle Boy intrusion. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I was the one that came up with, with that one. It sounds like something I do. My memory's a little bit fuzzy on that one, but uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was a, growing up, I was a big fan about uh, uh, of secret codes and such. So that, that sounds like uh, probably something that was my brainchild for like yeah, for a bit, a bit of the prisoner, protection. prisoner influence getting in there. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Uh, you also work with interactive support group, developing titles for the CDI and uh 3DO. How was this experience, and how did you kind of find working for the CDI? Yeah, I um, that was that was a company I joined after Disney. Uh, problem with Disney was that we were victims of our own success. Our, our games had gotten so popular that uh, all the other managers at Disney wanted to get their hands in, and so every time we pitched a new game, it had had to get the approval of ten different managers. It was always easier to come up with a reason to say no than a reason to say yes. And uh, after after six months, I, uh, I I couldn't get a single project approved. So I, I left Disney and I joined a, a very, very small developer, interactive support group that, that yes, made CDI. And uh, that made CDI games. And CDI was one of the very first game console systems that was based upon uh, CD technology. It wasn't a very, to be honest, it wasn't a very good console system. It didn't have a, it didn't have, one of the problems was it didn't have a, a sprite generator built into the hardware. So it really didn't make it a terrific gaming platform. Uh, its advantage was that uh, it could play uh, full motion video and uh, Interactive support group, the company joined, ha- uh, created its own proprietary, proprietary codec, a compressor decompressor for, for doing full motion video. So when I joined them as a producer, I, uh, I played up our, our, our leaned into our, our, our advantage of uh, doing full motion video. And so the game that I produced for them was called uh, Video Speedway, which was a, a racing game. Uh, where you started with kart racing, then eventually advanced on to Formula One racing. And in it, I used full motion video at the end of a race to uh, be your payoff on it. So I got a whole bunch of stock footage of car crashes or crossing the finish line that we'd play. But we also recorded some of our own video. I, uh, I hired an actor and actress, one to play a, a car mechanic, and went to the... Uh, local uh local go-kart racing track uh with a camera crew and we uh hired him to say a bunch of uh lines uh that would be your clues for how to 
make improvements to your car as you uh, leveled up and, and could apply points to uh, different different attributes of your car. And then we had a um, uh, had an actress who played the trophy presenter that uh, every time you won, present you with a trophy and give you some some line of encouragement. So uh, that was kind of my got kind of got to dip my toe into uh, a video production at the time. That that was most notable about at that era, uh, getting getting to work with uh, video. We also made Compton's uh, interactive encyclopedia for the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica company, uh, where we use a lot of full motion video clips in the in the article entries. Well, you then started working with Cyber Dreams and uh, published the absolutely amazing "I Have No Mouth and I'm a Screen," uh, collaborating with Harlan Ellison. How did you get involved yeah. in this? Well. When I was working at Interactive Support Group, uh, I uh, I went and attended uh, the uh, annual Game Developers Conference, and one of the sessions I attended was an announcement of a new game, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, based upon Harlan Ellison's short story. And uh, at the presentation, Harlan was there, accompanied by a... Uh, Young man named David Sears, who was his uh, who was his game designer, and they were working on an adaptation of the, of, of the short story. And boy, I was jealous because uh, I was a big fan of Harlan. I'd, I'd listened to him at several science fiction conventions in the past, and I know Mathemas Scream was my favorite short story of all time. And because of my work on The Prisoner, I thought myself. I was. I thought I was the best person to be working on a game like this. So uh, I was. Uh, I was really jealous that, that I wasn't working on this game. Well, as it turned out, about six months later, uh, the owners of Interactive Support Group had a falling out, and they were disbanding the company. And as I was trying to figure out what to do next, I got a phone call from the owner of Cyber Dreams, who said they were looking for a producer, and they had heard good things about me and wanted to know if I was interested in interviewing for the position. And so I interviewed, and they hired me, and it turned out it was to be the producer of I Have No Mouth and I Am a Scream. Completely coincidental. And uh, as it turned out, it was a uh, the, uh, the David Sears, the original designer, had, had left the project, uh, and uh, the game design was only half done, and they needed someone to help finish up the design. So uh, it turned out my, uh, my, my wishes came true with that project. So I, I, I got to, to meet uh, Harlan for the first time, and he did not disappoint. Harlan has always been known for being a very difficult person to work with. And uh, I remember showing up at his, at his home for the first time. It was a kind of a normal-looking house in the middle of the uh, – in, in, a, in a middle class – suburban neighborhood of uh, Sherman Oaks, California, not too far away from our offices, except that all around the roof, lining the roof, were a bunch of stone gargoyles <laughs> that were be seated behind razor wire. Uh, so uh, the razor wire was there to prevent people, vandals, from stealing the gargoyles. So <laughs> it kind of made a, gave it a very gothic, sinister look to the house. Well, it it was a very kind of dark, sinister game as well. Like um, you had to oh, deal with ethical dilemmas such as insanity, rape, paranoia, and genocide, and kind of you know, there's not many games that cover such subjects. No, and if, well, 
except maybe maybe the prisoner that I had done before, yeah. which is why I thought it was appropriate for working on this game. Yeah, it was a very controversial game. It uh, you know, and, and Harlan's writing is like that. He 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 tackles controversial subjects, um, and uh, in fact, yeah, what one of the scenarios in it, the way the game came about. And uh, you've got to give David Sears, the original designer, credit for this when they were uh, figuring out how to adapt the short story, which is only a few pages long, um, how to adapt that into a, a, a game that you could play across like 40 hours. One of the questions he asked Harlan was, why did – the story is all about a, a insane supercomputer that had merged. It was the, uh, the, the American – Chinese and Russian computers that controlled all the nuclear missiles at the time merged together into one giant single powerful intelligence. Uh, that was insane because that had all this power, but really couldn't do anything with it. And it had decided to fire off all the missiles and kill off all of humanity except for five people that it kept alive and just emotionally tortured, well, emotionally and physically tortured. Uh, for years and years and years and years and years. and Who knows how long it did that. And so what David Sears asked Harlan was, why these five people? Harlan didn't have an answer for that, but they decided to come up with an answer in this video game, and they decided that each of these people would have some kind of tragic flaw in their background, and they had to learn to overcome this flaw. And uh, each, each one of them in the game would have their own scenario. And in the scenario, they had to discover what their tragic flaw was, uh, their fatal flaw, and then overcome it. And one of them was had been a uh, doctor in a Nazi prison camp who was involved with the Holocaust. We, we weren't afraid of the controversy. Certainly Harlan wasn't afraid of the controversy. Uh, that we, we, we just saw that as being part of our brand, uh, wanting to take on uh, – uh, take on uh, science fiction subjects that dealt with the more uh, more gruesome side of human nature. And the kind of new improved SVGA graphics and the soundtrack and even coming with a beautiful retail box with a 3D mouse pad as well. It all kind of added to the vibes of the game. Yeah, we uh, we, we really wanted to, to, to uh, in addition to, to making games based upon great works like, like the uh, story of uh, the story of uh, Harlan Ellison. We also worked with H.R. Giger and made a game based upon his artwork. Uh, it was really important to us to uh, to have high level uh, audio and 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 artwork in the game. And uh, working on I Have No Mouth and I'm a Scream, we were really lucky to have a, a company called uh, Dreamers Guild do the artwork for that. Brad Schenk was the art director. Uh, he they did an excellent job in the artwork. And the person who composed the uh, the soundtrack for that game was the audio composer for all of the music composer for all of uh, Brian Singer's films. Uh, uh, John, John Ottoman. John Ottoman, yes. John Ottoman. Uh, he composed the soundtrack for the game and did a fantastic job for it. Uh, really came up with really great music. At the same time, he was composing the music and editing uh, uh, The Usual Suspects. Wow, so, yeah, which was like, great film, great film, right? Amazing and, cult film, and, yeah. And, yeah, and, and, work, and working on our game at the same time and, and really did a great job with the music. Uh, that was really good. 
I remember, and for working on uh, the game with H.R. Giger, Dark Seed, we, uh, we we brought on a lot of other great people too. We had a uh, television uh, movie composer uh, come in and do the the the, uh, the art for it. Uh, sorry, the music for it. I brought in uh, the uh, art director who I worked with at the Walt Disney Company. I brought him in uh, to do some of the artwork for the game. We had uh, I had a writer who had worked on the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, role-playing game, do a lot of the dialogue, and the designer of that game was uh, Raymond Benson, who eventually went on to become a, a uh, one of the official James Bond novelists. Uh, so uh, working at Cyber Games, it was really fun because I got to put together all these groups of very talented people from different fields, all to work together to uh, work with uh, you know great talents like uh, Harlan Ellison and H.R. Giger. Well, you mentioned Darkseed there as well. Were you involved with Darkseed 1 as well as uh, Darkseed 2? No, no, no. Darkseed 1 was, was made before I joined the company. I, I, I worked on the sequel to it. Well, um, um, the sequel was very much a kind of full FMV acted, new technology kind of um, piece with digitized actors. Um, it's very inspired by a kind of Twin Peaks style. Were you watching a lot of that at the time? Oh, I was a huge fan of Twin Peaks at the time. And in fact, yeah, uh, uh, the designer, Raymond Benson, put in a number of Twin Peaks references into the game. We had one character in there who was uh, who was obsessed with watering his lawn, and that was an inspiration <laughs> taken from uh, – no, that, actually, the, the inspiration from that was from uh, David Lynch's uh, film uh, uh, Blue Velvet. So there, there were there, there were Twin Peaks. There were a very number of, of, of Twin Peaks and, and Blue Velvet and other David Lynch references within that film, within that 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 game. Yeah, we the game was all about trying to to create the feeling of going mad. And as as you got more and more, uh, as your your insanity level grows, uh, your world transforms from our normal world into the uh, to the uh, dark and twisted world of H.R. Giger. Uh, so that was. And, uh, uh... Was it kind of like making a film, that game? Because there was so much acting in it, and you, you must have had to do scripts, uh, voiceovers, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, did it kind of feel like it was a crossover point where games were turning more into this interactive experience? Well, not probably more so in other games I worked on. It was a lot more like that. Uh, we the, uh, the characters in the game were rotoscoped, that is – we uh, a series of photographs were taken of real actors and then they were cut out and then they were turned into the animation. So it didn't really have full motion video in it. Uh, not like uh, we had video clips in, in the games they did at interactive support group. We actually did do a game using full motion video at cyber dreams. It was a game, not nearly as successful as our other games. It was a game called noir, which was uh, designed by a, uh, film and television director named Jeff Blythe. And uh, th- this was a game that, that was uh, made using real-life photography and full-motion video uh, that took place in, in uh, 1940s Los Angeles that we actually filmed at various locations all throughout Los Angeles, including the uh, Bradbury building where Blade Runner was filmed. And that in, in that game we uh, we we used uh, green screen and we had on location filming and we used uh, sets and sound stages to film the uh, various characters that you interacted with. Whenever you go up to go into a conversation, you would uh, it would it would transform from photographs 
into uh, our photo photo reel backgrounds into uh, full motion video responses from the characters. Well, how did you get involved with the FreeDO company, and how did Microsoft and EA kind of form this company out of the ashes of the FreeDO uh, console? I joined the FreeDO company long after it had uh, gone in, after it formed. Uh, I think I was working at Interactive Support Group when uh, Trip Hawkins from, from Electronic Arts from the 3DO company. And I went up to him. I, I, attended, I attended the uh, press event that announced the 3DO platform. And uh, I was very impressed with the platform, and I went up and congratulated Trip on it afterwards. Uh, and, in fact, I got a deal with uh, Interactive Support Group to make a, uh, make, our, make a racing game for the 3DO platform. Unfortunately, Interactive Support Group fell apart before we could get very far into the game, so never had a chance to complete it. So, But, yeah, uh, 3DO had been around for several years before I joined the, the, the company. And the uh, way I joined it was that when uh, Cyber Dreams eventually folded because uh, the owner of the company was making more money on his, on his other, other companies that he owned, um, a former uh, Cyber Dreams programmer had joined, uh, had joined uh, 3DO's New World Computing division. And he had heard that they were looking for a producer for their Heroes of Might Magic series. And so he called me up and said um, he thought I'd be good in the role and why don't I well, apply for it and so uh, so I did and uh, met with John Van Canaham, uh who was the uh, founder of the company and Mark Caldwell as general manager and uh, turned out I met John Van Canaham earlier we had both uh, been on the same game panel uh, same panel about game design uh, at a game developers conference and uh, after the panel we said yeah we should work together sometime and Several years passed by, and here was the opportunity. And so they brought me on to be the uh, director of the Heroes of Mind Magic development team. They had been bought out by 3DO about maybe like six months prior. So uh, so we were essentially 3DO's game development studio for the for the Mind Magic product line. Well, Mind Magic was the role-playing game, and Heroes of Mind Magic was, the, uh, was a turn-based strategy game. How did you kind of bring new life into this uh, already running series and uh, especially with turn-based strategy at the time because that wasn't the most popular thing back then it was it was tough because actually heroes and mind magic 2 which had just been published was considered at the time to be one of the greatest turn-based strategy games of all time won all sorts of awards it was hugely popular and i was worried there was there was no place to go but down from it, but I, I sat down and I played the game for about a week, and one thing that struck me was that I thought the artwork was about five years behind the times, so I would make that my mission for for the sequel. I'd improve at least the quality of the artwork, and uh, when I when I went back uh, and talked to. Uh, to my bosses at, at New World about this, they they agreed. They, they they thought the quality of the artwork could be improved, and they they at the same time they hired a uh, a designer, Greg Fulton, on the same to start on the same day as I did, and he would be my designer. And uh, fortunately, he and I got along really great. We had a great working relationship, and he brought along some of the design improvements for the game. We sat down and we worked together in figuring out what the different towns would be and what, what creatures would be in the town. 
he more from the game design side and me from more the uh, aesthetic side. Then in terms of, of improving the artwork, what I decided to do was go and introduce myself individually to each of the artists within the company and uh, get to know them. And with each artist, they would tell me much I liked it there and how easy it was to work there. And the secret to working at New World was just goof off until like the final <laughs> two weeks of the project. They work really hard and then produce what you had to do. Until finally, the last person I talked to uh, was an artist named Phelan Sykes, who told me that everything there was terrible, that people were lazy and they could be doing much better work and they could be working much harder and doing much, much higher quality work. And I thought to myself, ah, I found my art director. And as it <laughs> turned out, she was the best artist in the company. And so uh, I said, you're going to be my art director in this project. And then uh, for the programmers, I brought in two of the programmers who had worked on I Have No Mouth and I Am a Scream the, uh, because uh, Dreamers Guild, the company that, that developed the game, and had, had also shut down. Uh, not too long ago. So, so I brought them aboard. And so I put together this team of some people I picked and some people that were given to me. And fortunately, we all, we all meshed together very well. We somehow, in 14 months, created a game that was even more successful than Heroes of My Magic 2. In fact, it's so successful, it's still, this is 20 years later, it's still hugely popular uh, in, uh, throughout Europe, especially Eastern Europe. One of the yeah, it's 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 still played to this day. Well, I was going to say uh, about fifteen years after the original release, they actually did a HD upgrade of uh, Heroes of Might and Magic Three. Um, what what did you think of that? Well, when when 3DO went out of business, isn't it terrible? I, I keep talking about all these these companies that have gone out of business, but that, that's what the game industry is like. Um, <laughs> when when 3D yeah, when 3DO eventually shut down, they they sold the rights to Heroes of Might and Magic to uh, to Ubisoft. And I'm glad that Ubisoft had been supporting the title all these years. And occasionally they would, whenever there was a big anniversary, like the 10th anniversary or the 15th anniversary of the game, they'd call me up and ask me to contribute something to, uh, to help promote it. And yeah, a couple of years ago, they did do a, uh, a remastered version of it with all new graphics and, and built around the, uh, the same gameplay. And uh, I was I was very pleased that that they did that. And I never actually went back to play it because it's it, you know it, I always prefer to be looking forward than for looking back. Uh, so uh, I th I think they gave it a, they gave it a good try. But you know that, that was a game that that was lightning in a bottle. It's really tough to recreate. Do you think there's any of your previous titles that you'd like to see a, a reboot of or a kind of a remaster and maybe find a new audience with? Oh, I'd love to do the prisoner again. I think in these times, boy, there's there, there's a lot of commentary that could be made into it. Yeah. I I I almost had an opportunity to do that. There was a uh, a remake of the show that uh, I think it was AMC uh, did that starred. It was done as a a, a mini series starring Ian McKellen as number two and uh jim caviezel as as the prisoner as number six and uh a amc contacted me and asked me if i'd be interested in doing uh doing a, a mini version of the prisoner to help promote the new version and uh, unfortunately the talks 
uh, so something happened, the talks didn't go very far, so I never wound up working on that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to actually do that again someday. Someone wants to give me the financial support to do it, I'll, I'll gladly turn their money into profits. Well, David, it's been fantastic. And uh, we always ask at the end, what, what are you up to nowadays? So um, what, what are you up to? Well, right now I'm, I'm splitting my time between teaching and consulting. I'm, I teach game design at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, teaching a new generation of game designers about how to, how to go about creating games that uh, my, my focus is on starting with what kind of play experience you want to create at first and then worry about the game mechanics afterwards. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm still trying to to go about getting some of those these uh, getting uh, people to break out of the standard uh, standard game genres and create something really interesting. But but we have a lot of great students that have come through our program, and uh, I'm, I'm confident they're going to turn into doing something great. And spending the rest of my time, I'm doing consulting on various projects. I am actually investigating a literary property to adapt for one developer as well as working with a, uh, another developer uh, helping them out with an educational game. Unfortunately, both products are way too early for me to, to reveal any, anything about what they are yet. Well, hopefully we'll see some uh, dark dystopian sci-fi stuff coming from those students. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so, but, but each one's got to follow their own muse, and we'll, we'll see what they turn out with. Awesome. Um, it's been fantastic talking to you. Cheers, David. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I enjoy talking with you too, and uh, and uh, stay safe during uh, during these very strange times. Mm-hmm.